0: Welcome to the Inner Source Healing Podcast, the program dedicated to helping you heal from toxic abuse. My name is Deborah Ashway, and I'm a licensed clinical mental health therapist and a licensed clinical addiction specialist. But more than that, I'm someone who's been where you are now and has experienced the devastating effects of toxic abuse. It's been a long journey through the path of healing, but I'm here to share with you the insights and the tools that I've gathered along the way. In this podcast, we'll explore the common symptoms that result from experiences with toxic abuse, such as depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, and feeling trapped. We'll also delve into the various techniques used by individuals with toxic and manipulative behaviors. But most importantly, I'll provide valuable techniques and practices to aid in the healing process. The healing journey brings us through those long-standing false perceptions that hold us back from experiencing a more fulfilling and meaningful life. It's about healing from dependency, codependency, trauma bonding, and abuse. You don't need to feel trapped anymore. Join me as we explore the path to inner healing and empowerment. Today, I am honored to have a highly respected and experienced expert in the field of psychology and relationships, particularly in relationships with narcissistic partners. We have Christine Hammond as our special guest. Christine hosts a podcast called Understanding Today's Narcissist. So I'm really excited to have a conversation with her about her experiences and her expertise. Christine is a licensed mental health counselor. And a marriage and family therapist, and also the author of acclaimed books on mental health and personal growth. With a wealth of knowledge and a passion for helping individuals navigate the turbulent waters of toxic relationships, Christine brings a unique and empathetic perspective to the subject of understanding and healing from narcissistic relationships. Today, Christine Hammond is here to share her invaluable expertise, guidance, and wisdom, offering us a roadmap to healing, recovery, and self-empowerment. Welcome, Christine. I am truly grateful to have you here with me today. Thank you so
1: much for joining me. Yes, yeah, thank you. I'm excited to be here.
0: Um, well, to start, what motivated you to help increase awareness about narcissists? Because we're kind of along the same path here.
1: Yeah. Um, well, what What wound up happening is I was seeing a lot of clients who are coming in and, um, and talking about a certain type of personality that was very controlling and manipulative and they were having a hard time dealing with it. And as I started learning more about narcissism, um, and starting to understand it more, I wanted to bring more awareness to it and awareness from the sense that a lot of, um, other information out there has the concept of you have to run away from every narcissist that you see. And I hope that what comes really uh, uh, apparent in my podcast is that you don't have to run away from them. You just have to understand it and know how to deal with it so that you can move forward. Um, And some people do choose to stay in a relationship with a narcissist. and, And part of what I believe is that if that's your choice, Uh, then I'm going to help you do it. And I'm going to help you find the best way to do it so that you don't lose yourself in it. But for other people uh, getting away is like their number one priority. And that's fine too. So I want to be able to help people make the choice that's right for them along the way without demonizing somebody because they have a disorder.
0: That's interesting. So you're seeing a lot of people that are in these relationships, you're seeing the manipulation and whether they decide to stay or go, you're you're interested in just helping them, it sounds like navigate these.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Yes. Yeah.
0: I mean, what I see is the most difficult part um initially is just even understanding that you're in one because of all the gaslighting that goes on and all the manipulation and the programming that takes place because of that. Can you talk about that a little bit? That just the gaslighting or the programming and its role in these relationships absolutely
1: um so you know it, it isn't it just narcissistic personality disorder where you have this component so there are other personality disorders where this is also a problem so i want to want to make sure that we're clear that it isn't just one and the others are somehow okay and don't do this um so it is a characteristic of some of the personality disorders not all of them that because they lack an accurate perception of reality, they they tend to impose their reality onto everybody else. So if you imagine like um, the, the, one of the foundational beliefs uh, or the foundational concepts of every personality disorder is an inaccurate perception of reality. So if you, for instance, can have like rose-colored glasses on and you see the entire world through these rose-colored glasses, and somebody says to you, hey, like, I don't think everything is a different shade of red. Um, And and like, there are other colors out there other than red. And, and what happens in, particularly in narcissism, because they are so superior and believe that they're so right all the time, and that everything they see is accurate, they like hold on to those glasses even tighter. And so they kind of like double down on their perception of things. And so the more you try to convince them that there are other colors out there other than different shades of red, the more they insist that the only thing that exists is just that color. And I'm using that as a very basic example, but I hope it makes the point. Like um, the harder you try to show them something different, the harder they try to show you that this is their reality. And and because of that, that's where we get the gaslighting, where there's this intentional trying to drive you crazy by doing so um, and making you think that somehow you are like misperceiving things and you're the one that's getting it all wrong. Because don't you know, I'm so smart. I'm so bright. I'm so beautiful. I'm so intelligent. I'm the best. And because I'm all of these things, then you should just follow me and see the world the way that I see it through these rose colored glasses.
0: That's a good way to describe it, that it sound now that sounds a little more, I guess, passive, innocent in a way, even though you're describing some of the narcissistic traits. And you're right. I like what you said. It doesn't just apply to narcissists. We're talking about any kind of toxic behavior, yes. toxic behavior, meaning manipulative they're trying to twist your world into their reality. Do you ever find mm-hmm. where it's intentional, where it's not quite so passive? Like, just look what I see. It's like, yeah. you will, they want to, like where the term came from originally, that movie, Gaslighting, where they're trying to make you discount your version of reality.
1: Yes. So like, I in the rose-colored glasses analogy, I am trying to make it sound a little passive because- Truly, for some narcissists, it isn't that they are intentionally trying to deceive you. But then there are those that are. <laughs> so there are those that actually know that they have the rose-colored glasses on, and they don't care what you think because they're going to make you believe that what they see is the right way of seeing it. So, so there is a difference there. There are some who aren't intentionally trying to do it, they're not being mean about it. They're not necessarily manipulative about it. But then there's that small, like much smaller percent of that population that's like, absolutely not. This is the way it is. I don't care what you think. It's going to be my way or the highway. There is no room for anything else. And, and they're very controlling and very dominating. And so that is a very, that's a very different construct.
0: How do you help people kind of sort through the difference. I don't know if you, you probably come across this too, but a lot of clients have a hard time Um, they want to know, is this intentional? Are they intentionally trying to control me and manipulate me? Because if that's the case, then they can be angry and mad and that's easier. And that helps them get to the next level of setting boundaries. But if they're not doing this intentionally, and sometimes they'll say, maybe they're just neurodivergent or maybe they're just, you know, they come up with excuses or even, you know, if they're, you know, substance abuse or whatever, um, then it it keeps them from moving to that place of self-protection.
1: Yeah, so let's let's talk about those two examples that you gave, the neurodivergent and the substance abuse. So what we find a lot with people who have like what I call chronic substance abuse, like lifelong, um, it, it goes away, it comes back, goes away, it comes back, and it transforms from one to another to another to another. Like sometimes it doesn't even stay with the same like drug of choice, it, it, how we say it, right? Um, it just keeps morphing into something different. What we find with that population is that they tend to have a personality disorder. There's nine different personality disorders, and they tend to have one along the way. Not always, not all the time, not every substance abuser has a personality disorder. Sometimes they they are truly by trauma, but in and of itself, and, and this is the hard part why we have to always be careful about diagnosing somebody with narcissism, is because part of the nature of having let's just say an alcohol addiction right alcohol becomes a semi-god to you in that everything you do in your entire life if you are a substance abuser of alcohol is that you are focused solely on getting that alcohol getting that drink so every nothing around you matters except for the next drink that you're going to have And so because everything kind of falls away side and you just focus on that one thing come across as very selfish, you come across as very demanding, controlling, manipulative, like all the things that look exactly like narcissism, except that you might not actually have it. You might just have a substance abuse problem, or you might have both. You might be narcissistic and have a substance abuse problem. So it could be two. It could be just one. We don't know neurodivergent is another concept and that's kind of why i talked a little bit about the passivity that can happen with some narcissism um and because sometimes with neurodivergent they do truly can only see through rose-colored glasses because of the way that their brain works and the way that it functions they are not able to and they are not intentionally trying to convince you that this is the only way that you should see it is that they truly cannot see any other way they are I call it, you know, it's easier to explain it in terms of like, well, we don't look at a blind person and say, describe the color red. Like you, j- that's just cool. Well, the same thing exists for anybody who's neurodivergent. And so like, yes, you could fall into that category. You could fall into the substance abuse category. You could fall into the personality disorder category or you could have all three. Like, so there. that's why it's really important to get a very accurate diagnosis of what you're dealing with and not just Google it and say, oh, this is what it is, and then go running with it. The other element I want to add that's really important to recognize is that sometimes trauma that has not been dealt with can come across as narcissistic. And it, and it is a traumatized person that has been through something very bad. Like um, it could be, I had a client one time and I'll explain this and he um appeared very narcissistic. I like couldn't get through to him was trying all different kinds of things and then finally I was like I said tell me more about like growing up because I knew his parent his father had died at a young age and I'm like tell me a little bit more about that. What I didn't know is that his father had died in his arms at a young age. And at that moment that like everything clicked for me and and I was like oh my gosh he is still stuck at that age he has never grown up and so because he's stuck at this like literally four-year-old age no wonder why he acts like a four-year-old which kind of looks like a narcissist like it all kind of made sense as to how we got here so we do have to be careful when we're looking at this like you've got to look at the whole picture to make sure that you truly have somebody that's personality disorder and doesn't have what could, what could look like it, but really isn't it at all. And the importance of that is like with substance abuse, like if you get treatment and help and you follow through your program and you and you do your steps and all the things, you can get better. With trauma, if you do the work and you like go to a therapist and you get help and you get healing, you can do better. Um, if you're neurodivergent, you, you can get some therapy, you can get some help, you can like learn to understand things from different perspectives, And you can get better. So you can get better in those categories. And so so they might look like it, but they actually aren't narcissism. Even somebody who's narcissistic, sometimes they can improve, but they can only improve in as much as their narcissism will allow them to. So I want to make sure we're really clear about that. Um, so I say that you, we can you can learn how to manage your disorder, but it doesn't ever go away. It is always going to be your default attitude, behavior, the way that you operate. But you can learn to manage it in a way that makes you like better at relationships, better with your kids, better with coworkers. Like you can learn how to manage it, but you have to really choose it and really very badly want to do that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Like you're, you're right. Like recovering from addiction. That's a lot of work. It's all a lot of work. How does that make a difference um, in the partners of these? So in other words, treating a partner in somebody who's in a relationship with a, you know, a substance abuse and that's it, or neurodivergent diverg- or PTSD, you know, recovering versus anyone along that dark triad, narcissism, you know, sociopathic, psychopathic. How, how does that play into treatment of those partners?
1: So I like to treat everybody, right? So when I have somebody who fits into one of those populations, I don't wanna just work with them. I also want to like have my finger on kind of like meet and 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 allow the others in their life to also reach out to me and talk to me because I only see them for the hour that I see them. I don't get to see them for the rest of the time. So I have no idea whether what they're saying to me is accurate or not unless I get feedback from other people. And I find that that also allows for accountability and that allows for somebody to actually do better because then they know, okay? hey, we're going to wind up having to have a three-way conversation now because of this blow-up that happened over here. So so that's when I'm working with somebody who has one of those disorders. When I'm working with somebody who is the spouse of someone who has one of those disorders, the most important thing that we do is, is try to get an accurate assessment as to what's going on. We don't jump to conclusions. We don't assume the worst. We assume the best at first and kind of like knock down from the best to where it could be. So I'll give you an example. Um, I was working with a husband one time. He came in, he says, Oh, my wife, I think she has um, she's narcissistic. He gave me a bunch of examples, certainly sounded like it right on the front end from what he was explaining it to me. Um, but then as we started talking more, I said, you know, it might actually be trauma. Let let's. Let's pretend for a second, instead of we go down the narcissistic path, let's go down the traumatic path and see. And here's a couple of things that I'd like you to do and talk to her about. And here's a couple of areas. And sure enough, as they started having more conversations with her, um, we were able to uncover that there was trauma, that that it actually, she wasn't narcissistic. It truly was like from trauma that she had existed when she was a child and she hadn't gotten the help that she needed and so through that path of like assuming the best and not the worst, like we were able to get her the help that she needed and their marriage got much better as a result.
0: That's good. Um, because the behaviors, whether it is, you know, from one of the dark triads, which does mean low empathy or it is from somebody who's suffering from PTSD, which maybe they have a little bit more empathy. And that seems like a, it, there might be some more hope, or somebody who's suffering from substance abuse. How does the behavior of any of these? They're similar behaviors. They're all trying to protect something very important to them, whether it's their ego, the substances that they use, or to feel safe. How does their the similar behaviors, the manipulative behaviors, impact the mental and emotional well being of the partners?
1: Yeah. It can have a significant impact. So I have seen people who, and we'll use substance abuse for an example. I've seen spouses, like as soon as they've identified that their spouse has a substance abuse problem, they're like, peace out, I'm done. Like, I can't handle this. I like, this is too much for me. I, I can't manage it. I've seen others who decide to separate immediately, which is usually what I recommend for people when they first come across something like that just like take a break for a while, see if the other person gets better, see if they do their stuff, see if they get help. Um, and then we can re-engage and see if we can actually make it work. Um, so usually what I do is I go the route of well, let's, let's get some distance there and kind of see what happens during that time period, which is better than just cutting and running entirely. Um, and then you just get some separation. Separation also allows for like a better perspective on things like, um, is this really the way that I want to go? Do I really want to be the spouse of somebody? And again, I'm just using substance abuse for a hot second. Do I really want to be the spouse of somebody where I'm always going to be kind of like wondering, oh, are they abusing again? Do I really want to do that? Or am I okay with that? Am I okay with like supporting the groups that might come along with it? Am I okay with going, for instance, to Al-Anon and like getting the help that I might need as a result of all of this? Am I okay with that? Because if I am okay well, then we can find a way to make the relationship work. If I'm not okay, well, then that's a whole other different decision along the way. So it, it's up to the individual. And there's no shame, no guilt, no judgment for whichever way that you choose to go. Like, whatever way you choose to go, it's your journey, it's your life. Like, you have to do what you feel is the best choice for yourself. Um, and so though, in those cases, like, that's what I usually recommend. Now, if we're talking, like, you all of a sudden find out like you are married to somebody who is on the sociopathic psychopathic scale, like say married to somebody like that is really, really hard to do um, and not highly recommended just because you're always going to be put in a very subordinate position in comparison to them. And, and so that's a whole different ballpark over there than what we're talking about with trauma or substance abuse. Um, even narcissism, like for some people, like once they realize what they've gotten themselves into, again, they can't, They it, it's not good for them. For them, they have to get out because it's the only way they can breathe. It's the only way that they can survive. It's the only way that they can like actually feel like themselves. Other people are able to like get some therapy, get some help, start being themselves within the relationship, even in a separated environment, are able to stay healthy, and, and still be in a relationship with the narcissistic partner. But the narcissistic partner has to have some level of awareness of what they have, has to like recognize when they're having their narcissistic behaviors, has to be willing to like, you know, come alongside and partner up. It, this can't be like a, hey, I can get better over here. And, and the narcissist doesn't have to do any work over here. That's, that, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is they recognize that they can get better in some kind of way, shape or form and can be managed better. And then the spouse also gets better as well. That's that, that is workable.
0: Yeah. yeah. It's just so many narcissists. I, it just goes against itself since the, since the fundamental problem with narcissism or anything like that is protecting the ego. So there's very, little room for the introspection it's hard to get somebody with that disorder any of those disorders to even see that there's any flaws let alone do any work on it but i do have a lot of clients i'm sure you do who really want to stay in the relationship or have to stay in the relationship whether mm-hmm. it's now they've become financially dependent on them or because it's kids, or sometimes it's not even their partner. It's, it's family. They can't get away. Um, right. So, and you say that you help navigate people in those situations. Mm-hmm. What are, what are some of the ways that you do that? Like what's some of the most important, at least the key factors in staying in one of those relationships, or if you stuck in one of those?
1: So let's use the example of like you're a parent and you have an adult child who's narcissistic, right? You don't like divorce ourselves from our children. So like, so what are you going to do, right? Like you found out, you figured it out. You are a mom and you have a narcissistic child. Okay. So now what do you do? Well, what you have to do is constantly stay grounded within yourself. You have to know yourself really well. Um, You have to not blame yourself for the reason why your child became narcissistic not your fault and so like we don't take on excessive responsibility for that um so you have to like have a good strong sense of self and you also have to set fairly good boundaries like you have to know what your boundaries are now with the narcissist you don't state your boundaries to them because if you state a boundary to a narcissist that becomes like a fun thing for them to like step over so so we don't do that you, you have you have boundaries that you decide in your head You've talked to a therapist, maybe you've talked to other family members, you all kind of agree, okay, like if this happens, then this is what we're going to do next. And so you you have a plan, you have a game plan for how you're going to handle things going forward. You can look at the behaviors that have happened in the past that are problematic and you can work through it. So you can like kind of like a playbook, like we replay things. Okay, this is what happened last Thanksgiving. So let's talk about we don't want that to happen again next Thanksgiving. So what do we have to do different? What could we have done different to prevent that from happening before? What do we need to do different going forward? And and what does that look like? And, and so it's really important that you do that, that you do a lot of that because the more you can do, the more you can figure out what to do next in those critical moments where you might not be able to think as quickly as you would like to, which brings me to another point. You're in a relationship with a narcissist. One of the horrible things that happens to you is that you go into something called survival mode. And when you go into survival mode, one of four responses are automatic that's gonna happen to you. You are gonna wanna fight, You, you are gonna wanna flee, you're gonna wanna freeze, where you're going to want to faint one of those forces, and you don't get to control which one of these happens. So, uh, and I'll use this example. I'll use this often with the military. The military knows that we have all these four responses. The last thing they want you to do is freeze, flee or faint, right? Can't do that when you're in the military, you have to fight, right? So So through a lot of training, a lot of training, they get used so that when you get in survival mode, the only response you have is fight, which is why when people come out of the military, they have such a hard time integrating within the civilian's life because it's very different because they've been conditioned now to have that response. So going back to you, you got to know which one of, which is your natural response when you go into survival mode. And here's why it's so important. When you go into survival mode, your your um brain the executive functioning part of your brain literally shuts down so that your ability to think through a situation doesn't happen because your body just goes into automatic mode of like i have to take care of myself so when you're in the situation with somebody who's narcissistic and if you recognize that you go into survival mode many times when you're talking to them you have to counteract that survival mode you have to keep that from happening Because once that's happened, you're gonna have a very hard time thinking through what to do next, and and like going through like kind of what we said before, where you've like thought through in the past what could I have done different at Thanksgiving. You're gonna have a really hard time this Thanksgiving. um, In that moment, if you're in survival mode, so the way to counteract that is the second you become aware that you're starting to get into survival mode, you have to say the words "I'm safe." And you say it over and over and over again, and you take several deep breaths. And you just like calm yourself down, go to like, go hide in the bathroom if you need to, but like, go do something so that you can like start to reground yourself and be present. Because when we go in survival mode, we're not very present. So get very present and reground yourself and then rejoin the situation and you'll be able to respond in the way that you feel more comfortable.
0: Yeah, it's training. Like you said, in the military, they're trained to only have that one response. I want to add one more, too, that I see a lot, <clears throat> which is fawn. So we always say fight, flight, freeze, faint, or fawn. Where fawning, they go into tra- the people-pleasing, the over, you know.
1: Oh, I like that, yeah.
0: <clears throat> yeah, I see that all the time. And um, and so, so the, just the same as when the military is, you know, people that are in the military are trained for their response to be fight- is it kind of similar like that? Because we're doing a lot of um, conditioning both ways. There, People that have been in these relationships have been conditioned to no longer trust themselves and no longer feel safe in their own judgment, but then to tune into the um, decisions and the realities that their partners have set for them. So they're almost in constant fight flight, freeze, faint, or fawn. So the conditioning, it sounds like what you're saying is go and take a deep breath and repeat to yourself that you're safe. And we do that too. It's just practice over and over and over getting yeah. into that state of calm. Just, uh, That's the opposite yeah. of that fight, flight, or freeze. Have you found anything to be effective as far as... um. I guess I don't know how to term this, but breaking free from the trauma bond because it is it's sort of it is an addiction. I mean, they really do. They program you to become dependent on them. So then you are just like it, just like with substance abuse. Somebody's dependent on alcohol. So how how or what have you found that works or might be effective to break free from that trauma bond?
1: So trauma bonding is hard because it kind of depends on the person, right? So if, there, if it is, um, you have to go back to like what's going on in their head in that moment. So I usually like to do a little bit of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. I go through like my all or nothing thinking, the distorted thinking um, concept, and start to identify like what they have absorbed, what they have taken in, what they start to believe about themselves. So what I find a lot of times in trauma bonding is that they believe somehow that they're not good enough or they believe that they are stupid or that they are incapable or whatever it is. Like they have this horrible mental filter that they can't do anything right. So, so what we, what I work on very hard is to move them away from that thought pattern, um, to try to separate it out at that juncture, because if I can get them to, stop going down those thought patterns, those negative, distorted thinking thought patterns, then they can start to like, and we can fill in the blank with some more positive thought patterns. Um, then they can start to do better. They start to like see things from a better light. They start to see things from a good place. I also have them pair up with a buddy. Um, and so it could be like a best girlfriend or a, you know a boyfriend. It could be like somebody that they're close to that understands this because I can't be there all the time for them. And so I have them pair up with somebody that is going to help them, that they can like call or text at a moment and, and they're going to feed them positive information and positive encouragement whenever they need it. And so that helps because they kind of, it's the, it's kind of what we do. Like um, you have a sponsor when you have an addiction and so this is the same kind of concept except it's a little bit different you just have a friend that's like helping you along and that's really encouraging you and supporting you um so that you can start to break free from it because that trauma bonding is is very tight and then the last thing that we do which is the most important thing is we work through the trauma um whatever that trauma is and whatever got us there like we have to work through that and a lot of times it isn't that trauma, that initial trauma, it's like buried in childhood somewhere. And so it's also something that's relating back into childhood, which is why it has such a stronghold. And so once you start breaking free that childhood trauma from this current trauma over here, it's like the chains get loosened up and it gets much easier to be able to work through. Um, And then somebody does a lot better. So those are the three different things that I usually do in trying to help someone break that trauma bond.
0: That's good. Do you think or feel or have you ever observed um where any uh like any anybody's spirituality comes into play with that?
1: Yes, yeah. and it depends on Who the person is and how strong that is. I'm always, I'm very careful because I don't like to abuse somebody's spirituality, right. And use it against them or for, or too much for them. Like I, I really want them to learn how to um, stand on their own quite a bit, but if they find some comfort and healing through their own spirituality, absolutely. We'll bring that into and, and have that be part of what we do.
0: Yeah. I was just curious about that because it just kind of crossed my mind when you think about the support groups, you know, you're talking about sponsors and getting buddies and that's such a good idea. And, but some of the main themes of the support groups are like turning it over to a higher power. So I was wondering if Mm -hmm. the same could apply to when, you know, people are trying to break free from a trauma bond because they've kind of, yeah. Um, yeah what advice do you have for people who are struggling to break free from this because of the fear of the consequences?
1: So we talk about that. Like, um, I kind of feel like use the same philosophy that I do in obsessive compulsive, um, disorder where we do a little exposure therapy, you know? So we start, talking a little bit about like what are these consequences that are problematic for you and what is it and so we kind of like dip a toe into whatever that consequence is we pull it out real quick and then maybe next time we're putting like a couple toes in and then we put a foot in and and so like we just keep going a little bit further and further into whatever that is that they're so afraid of that is causing them to stay connected and 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 i don't know what it is like it could be like um fear of abandonment is the real common one so like a narcissistic person loves to pair up with somebody who has a fear of abandonment totally works for them right because then you're less likely to leave and get away from them and the narcissist gets all the feeding that they want because you're so desperate that you'll do anything because you're afraid of abandonment right so what we do is we kind of like dip a big toe into the water or the idea of abandonment and what I mean by that is that we start to talk about, like, maybe in other relationships where they might have felt abandoned before. And, and what what did that feel like? And were you able to, like, get better from that? And did you find other relationships as a result of that? And how did you heal from that before? Because, because the reality is even people who have a fear of abandonment, they've had relationships that have been abandoned. Like, like they, they, they don't know the exact same people they knew from the second they were born all the way until now. They had school friends that came in and out of their life. They Maybe they moved from one place to another or changed jobs. And so like they've had people throughout their entire life. And so when you start putting vocabulary to maybe what they've experienced, that fear all of a sudden becomes a lot less. And so the more that we can take that fear and reduce that fear into what I call a digestible proportion, well, then now the narcissist doesn't have their hold any longer. And that's how we make it better for them.
0: Yeah. And also I kind of want to talk about another myth because I think some people have the wrong idea and it still seems to be a stigma around it. That people who are in abusive relationships, they, they certainly feel shame, but that is Conditioned in them. They're conditioned. But then there's a stigma attached. Like there's a certain type of person that ends up in an abusive relationship that, you know, like you're saying, has a fear of abandonment, which is true. But there's also more than that. And I was wondering what your experience on that is. For example, I find that the people that end up in some of these relationships are they're extremely creative they're very dynamic they're very loving and giving they have a lot of what i would say good energy that they that they can feed off of sometimes they're very strong and intimidating and maybe that makes them good prey for these predators you know it's like a bigger catch what is what is your experience in dealing with people
1: and treating i believe that I believe anybody can be abused. And, and so like, it isn't like you don't have to be one type of personality in order to fall prey to some type of abuse. Anybody can be abused and it can happen in in a variety of areas. So I'll I'll give an example going back, like it can happen even within a church environment. And so I've seen like churches abuse people um, like not even intentionally, sometimes intentionally, but like I've seen that even happen in an environment um, because People are just trusting and they believe and they like take into it. Cults are a perfect example of this. Like you don't even know when you're getting into it. It seems so friendly. It seems so warm. It seems so inviting. And next thing you know, like one thing leads down to another. And now you're in some type of cult environment. We've seen celebrities get caught up in things like that. We've seen very influential people get caught up in stuff like that. Literally anybody can be abused. And so it isn't one type of personality over another. Um, It isn't like one socioeconomic group over another. It isn't one culture over another. It's none of that. Like we're all vulnerable to it. Um, And you have to know what your own vulnerabilities are in order for you to be aware of like, what is the potential for you and, and where you've been abused in the past. And what does that look like? And I'm gonna say this, not a popular concept, but I'm gonna say this, Um, victims can be abusers and abusers can be victims. And we have to remember that sometimes people also abuse because they have been abused. And so we have to recognize our own ability to be abusive and stop it within ourselves before we can start to like push away other people.
0: I mean, because what is your concept on, um, I kind of like, I kind of like to boil it down into two categories too, just for simplification when you're, receiving this kind of abuse and you're empathetic and you care and you're looking out for the greater good of the relationship and you're not self-serving, you're sort of operating more from your heart and soul versus when you're operating to only serve yourself, not looking out for other, not looking out for the greater good of the relationship It seems like you're operating from ego. So that's how I like to, you know, separate it. And I guess you're right. You can, you can switch over back and forth, but there are some times, don't you think where some people cannot fathom how somebody can do some of the things that they do. Like if they operate from their heart and soul, they're never going to be able to understand how somebody can do some of the manipulative and devious and hurtful things when, you know, when they're not ever operating from their ego or they, I mean, they do sometimes, but not to that extent.
1: Yeah. So, uh, so people do have a hard time understanding other people's motives, right? Um, Like they tend to like take what their motives are or their belief system and like project it onto other people. And they have a hard time recognizing that other people can have very different motives and, and operate from a different construct than what, what you can. And so, like, some people do operate from their heart, and they, like, truly do want the best for other people, and they just have, like, this nice nature where they love other people, and they care for other people, and they go into this world believing everybody else is like that. Well, those poor people are in for it because, like, there's a lot of other people out there that don't believe that at all. Some people believe in like the power, for instance, like they are driven solely by power and they don't care who they have to step on, walk on to get wherever they want. Um, And they don't think that there's anything wrong with that. There are other people who are driven solely by money. And so like they, all they care about is the accumulation of stuff or things or money. And it doesn't matter to them what they have to do in order to get that. Like they will do that. Some people are motivated by sex. And so they, they have the same kind of, so we can be motivated by a lot of different things. And, and so part of the job is like really recognizing that everybody can come to the table with different motives. And, but once again, we can't assign all one just because somebody's power hungry. They aren't always power hungry. They might be 99.9% of the time power hungry, but they, but it doesn't mean that they're always, or they might only be 50% power hungry like that we've got to think of it as like also like a spectrum like people most people exist on a spectrum and they are not the outliers most people are somewhere in between on the bell-shaped curve right
0: yeah well how can um people that are motivated from their heart and soul that really aren't motivated by the attention or the power or admiration or control or many or any of the other things, how can they identify the people that are along the narcissistic personality disorder, any of those um, toxic behaviors, when they're hiding it, they do such a good job at hiding it. They, they mimic those kind of behavior. They, they try to look like they have empathy. They try to look like they care for other people. They're, some of them are pretty covert. How do, what are some ways to help those people identify the disingenuineness, I guess?
1: So, so my sweet sensitive people, right? Um, the one thing that they do, um, is they turn their intuition off when they come around people like this. And so the big thing that I try to teach them is to pay attention to their intuition. Because when they pay attention to their intuition and they really use I call it their superpower. When they use their superpower, then they don't get caught in the web. It is when they turn their superpower off and they're like, "Oh yeah, well, I, you know, I shouldn't be feeling this way. Everything tells me that, you know, it's fine and I shouldn't be feeling this way." even though I feel this way, but I shouldn't be, so I'm gonna just dive in, right? But they know deep inside themselves that something's not right and something's wrong. And so people who are sensitive have that sense, they have that superpower, they have that intuition. And so the number one thing I try to work with them in particular with is turning that intuition back on because they shut it off for a reason. I don't know why, we have to uncover the reasons why, There's usually some pretty good ones along the way, but once they turn it back on, then they don't get caught up in it as much.
0: Yeah. And how I was just going to ask you what makes them turn their intuition off?
1: It's somewhere in childhood. Somebody said, Oh, you're too sensitive. I can't believe you, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, you're making a big deal out of nothing. That's not true. And, you know, and they minimize or discount. And, and for whatever reason, like, you hold on to that, like they absorb it and they're like, Oh my gosh, maybe they're right. And so, and then they stop listening to their own intuition. But once you start paying attention to it again, then all of a sudden, like the world opens up and, and it, and it actually feels safer. Like, like the irony of it is like, You know, you think it won't feel safer if you're paying attention to your intuition, but it actually feels more safe because then you're walking through the grocery store and somebody approaches you and your intuition goes off. You're like, uh, and you turn around and you walk the other way because and now you're not even getting in trouble. You're not having a conversation with somebody unnecessarily who might be unsafe any longer because you paid attention to your intuition.
0: Yeah, exactly. How do you how do you help people back to their intuition or to reconnect with their intuition?
1: So, part of it is um we do I call it the grocery store exercise. <laughs> so, I I have them go into the grocery store and start paying attention to what they sense and what they pick up on because I call it a benign environment like more than likely nothing's going to happen nothing terrible is going to happen in a grocery store so like let's pick the nine environments that you have to go into and like maybe not every day but at least every week that that you can like start to like feel a little bit more and and feel what it's like to walk around paying attention to what your intuition is telling you and and i say it's often in the gut right your intuition is often in your gut And so, like it says to you, like it it speaks to you, and you have to listen to it. And so we start doing it in the grocery store where they start listening, and I just have them pay attention. Should you say hello to that cashier? It's okay if you don't. Like you don't have to say hello to every cashier. Like should you like when you walk past this person, like how did you feel? Like just becoming aware of that, and and when they're able to do that after a period of time then all of a sudden the intuition can kick in when you're around friends. And then once we start talking about friends, so we move from grocery store to friends next, right? Because again, an easier environment. And you start paying attention to friends and people that you're around. And, oh, should I talk to this person at a party? Should I not talk to that person? Like, who seems safe over here? Who seems a little unsafe? And and no judgment, call on it, whatever. Like, just pay attention to that. And then once we move from, from friends, then we can go to family, You know, because that's the hard one for us to pay attention to our intuition too. And then we start paying attention to our family and the people that we're close to. You might find along the way that there are other people that you probably have to distance yourself from um, as you start paying more attention to your intuition. And then the more you distance yourself from those people that your intuition is telling you, hey, you need to get a little weight from for whatever reason, um, the better you start to feel and the safer you start to feel.
0: That's good. I like that exercise. We always tell our clients to kind of go into and tune into their body because those are going to be the signals. Are you telling your clients the same thing?
1: Yeah. So I like to do a somatic exercise a lot of times with the clients and um, and I have them do it at night when they're in bed. And so they lay in bed and they like, I have them put their hand like skin to skin on an area that might be irritating them and, and have them actually talk to that area. And and pay attention to what that area or that part of your body is trying to tell you. Is it telling you that you feel stress? And, and why is it telling you that you feel stress in that area? Like what is it about? Like where where is it coming from? And again, no judgment. You just listen and pay attention. And then you remind your body that you can release the tension in that area, that it doesn't have to continue to hold on to that tension and let it go.
0: Um, Can you provide some guidance on how friends and family can, that are, you know, that are good, that are safe, can support somebody who is healing from a toxic relationship or maybe trying to leave a toxic relationship, or maybe they don't even know that they're in one yet?
1: Yeah. Okay. So three different things. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like, so let's start with like, they don't know that they're in a toxic relationship. Um, one of the things that you can do um, if you think that a friend of yours is in a toxic relationship is, it's just kind of say, Oh, you know, I was listening to this podcast. I thought you might like it, you know, and just be like very like nonchalant about it. Or I was reading this book and, and thought it might be good. So it's again, like it's an easy way of approaching the subject. Cause what you don't want to do is hit them over the head with it because that is not usually not received well. And then, and then they'll get counterattacked on the other side. And then there's a possibility that they might have to withdraw from the friendship and then you've lost your influence. So you don't want to do anything too much too fast. Like don't make too many moves all at once because that's not good. Um, and we want to be able to stay engaged because we don't know what choice they're going to make and they might need help. And so that's a whole different thing. So, so that's what to do. If you see somebody might be a toxic relationship is like, Just try to be their friend, be there for them, introduce them to a couple of things, see what they have to say, be available, be present for them. If you have a friend of yours who is actually in the middle of one right now and doesn't know what they want to do, doesn't know if they want to stay or go, like the most important thing you can do through that is just listen, like be there as a sounding board, be there to just listen, help them write out a pros and cons list whenever they need to, like help them to... Um, feel like they have a place where they can like let loose some of this stuff and absolutely please maintain a hundred percent confidentiality. No jibber jabbering to anybody else around you because, because the last thing that that person needs is for any information to get back to the other person when they are trying to like make a decision. So it's like lip sealed. like it, information comes in one way, it just stays, it doesn't go anywhere else. And and you are just helping that one person to be able to sort through um, what decision that they might make, and and they might need a safe place. For instance, like some people need to know, okay, I have a bed, I have a spare bedroom, it's all yours whenever you need it. Like if you want to like have a suitcase at my place just in case you need it, go for it. Like we'll put it in the garage, nobody will know it's there, it's between us, you know, that kind of thing, just so that they know that they have that support when and if they were ever to need it. Um, and then, and then the other person over here who has like stayed to leave, who's decided to leave, how can you support them? Um, you have to be team them. Like, uh, you you have to be a hundred percent in their camp, right? There is no going into the other camp and like staying or remaining friends. Like you've got to pick and choose because if they're making a decision to leave, they need a hundred percent support. And they cannot have somebody who has divided support or divided loyalties. Um, So if you are going to be helping them and supporting them, you've got to be 100% helping and supporting just them, nobody else. Um, Because otherwise they won't feel safe. You'll be like cast aside for somebody else who will be on their side 100%.
0: That is such good advice. Yes, 100% on their side. Because Mm -hmm. they already know if they've been in that relationship that whoever they're in the relationship with that's toxic is very capable of charming or manipulating Mm -hmm. or twisting the minds of people. And they will not trust a friend who is in both camps to to not become manipulated by them. Right.
1: Right. Right.
0: Yeah, that's excellent advice. Uh, Finally, what resources or tools can you recommend for our listeners who want to learn more about healing from, uh, you know, relationships with these people that have toxic behaviors?
1: So listening to podcasts is probably like the best way to start the process of figuring out what to do. There are a lot of good books out there. There are even workbooks that you can start to look up um and trying to get some help in order to figure out i I would say like your best resource of all of it though is a really good licensed therapist like please get yourself to a therapist who can like um get to know you better understand what your individual needs are because it might be that You need to work through some trauma before you can even make a decision. Like you might not even be in a strong enough place to make that decision to stay or to leave. Like you might have to get your own healing first. And so a really good licensed therapist can walk you through that. Um, And I would say that that is probably the most important thing that you can do for yourself during this time period.
0: Yeah, I agree. Thank you. Thank you so much, Christine, for your valuable wisdom and your expertise and your guidance, all your knowledge on healing and recovering, um, you know, only enhancing self empowerment to people that are listening. It's been very enlightening listening to you and talking with you. And I really appreciate you joining me today. Can you let our listeners know how to reach you?
1: Absolutely. So you can go to my website. It's grow with G R O W W I T H C H R A F T I N E.com. There's contact information there. There's podcasts, there's articles, all kinds of things to help you out.
0: Okay. Thank you. And yeah, please be sure to check out uh, Christine's books, articles, resources. Um, they'll all be linked in the, in this podcast in the notes and I'll provide information on how to connect with Christine and her therapy practice. And thank you again so much.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Inner Source Healing Podcast. It is important to give yourself the self-compassion that you deserve. And remember that your feelings matter. If you want more information or if you want to contact me, please visit my website at www.InnerSourceTherapy.com.